Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and you're listening to But That's Another Story from Macmillan Podcasts. Today, I'm going to start with a quote from Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes, translated by John Ormsby. Sancho saw it all and contemplated it all, and took a liking to it all. He was initially captivated by the stew pots, from which he would have willingly taken an average-sized one. Then the wineskin started to appeal to him, and finally the contents of the frying pans, if that's the right term for those cauldrons. And so, without being able to stand it any further, and not being able to help himself, he approached one of the diligent cooks, and with courteous and hungry words, he begged him to be allowed to dip a crust of bread into one of those pots. To which the cook responded, Brother, this is not one of those days when hunger rules, thanks to the rich Camacho. Dismount and see if there's a ladle, and skim off a chicken or two, and bon appetit. And recently, I got to talking about cooking, reading, playfulness, and compassion with today's guest. I'm Melissa Clark, and I'm a food reporter for The New York Times. Melissa Clark is a cookbook writer and the resident food columnist for The New York Times. Her work has been honored with awards by the James Beard Foundation and the International Association of Culinary Professionals. Her latest cookbook, Dinner in French, is due out in early March. I am a Brooklyn native. There aren't that many of us, but I born, I was born and bred in Brooklyn, um, where I still live. I've lived other places, but then I came back because, you know, Brooklyn just, it just calls you. And um, I grew up um, in a foodie household. My parents were Julia Child um, acolytes. You know, they cooked everything. Before Julia and Julia, they were cooking, you know, every dish out of um, Julia Child's cookbook. And it was such an important part of my childhood because... Um, well, we ate great food all the time, but we ate great French food all the time, and we ate great Brooklyn food all the time. And these two things were merged in my mind, and I actually kind of thought that French food normally had locks on it. Like, I thought that was normal, you know, and that the, the French must have eaten bagels. So it was this sort of conflation. Melissa learned important lessons about life in the kitchen. You know, my parents cooked, and so I learned how to cook really young. Um, they cooked differently. You know, I think the key to their marriage, and actually a kind of advisor for anybody's marriage, is cook a meal together but cook separate dishes. So, because I know that they were, when my dad was baking bread and my mom was making the stew, they were happy. But if my dad started to taste my mom's stew and, you know, he'd add a little of this and a little of that, that's when things got a little rocky. So, divide and conquer. And tell me about yourself as a kid. What was your character like? Oh, God, I don't even remember. How do you remember that far away? What was I like as a kid? Uh, I read a lot. I was a loner. I was very introspective. Um, I was shy. I didn't learn how to fake it in social situations until I was in college. It was really, you know, grade school was, it wasn't lonely. I was happy, but I wasn't it just didn't have a big social circle. I didn't know that that was a desirable thing to have. Um, yeah, I was pretty, I was, I was a quiet kid, but I was also a very hungry kid, and I loved poking around the kitchen, and that was one of my favorite things to do. My bid for attention, you know, whenever I wanted to make a new friend or try to get in with the in-group was to bake something. You know, that was, that was my entree. So I was already using food. Food, I guess, was my, my social lubricant, you know, back even when I was, I think, probably starting in junior high when I first learned how to bake brownies. 
Now, when people think now of Brooklyn, yeah, Brooklyn is the hipster capital of America. It's known for its restaurants and its food. Tell me about Brooklyn when you were growing up. Yeah, it was very different. Brooklyn, when I was growing up, was Jewish Brooklyn. At least that's how I knew it because I was, I mean, there was many ethnicities in Brooklyn, but to me it was Jewish Brooklyn. It was the Brooklyn of bagels and locks. It was the Brooklyn of, you know, appetizing stores. They were starting to be a lot of Russian stores and we would get pickled herring. Um, There was Lundy's, actually, so that was another part. Um, there was also actually there was there was Italian Brooklyn where we ate a lot. We went to um, Bay Ridge a lot. We went down to Sheepshead Bay. Defar's Pizza was there when I was growing up, and we got artichoke pizza. I'm describing Brooklyn just in terms of food, aren't I? Okay, there were other things that weren't about food in Brooklyn, um, but I really can't remember any of them. So you mentioned that books played an important role yes. as a kid. What were some of the earliest books that made an impression on you? I was obsessed with Laura Ingalls Wilder. I read every single one of those books, you know, probably 10 times. I just, I'd read the whole series and then I'd go back and read them again. And then I would go back and read them again. When we'd have a long car ride, my sister and I would quiz each other about trivia in the book. Like, do you remember the shape of Ma's buttons on that, you know, first <laughs> calico that she made? They were shaped like blackberries. <laughs> it was just like the stuff that we would. Um, and, you know, food was also really important in that book, too. I, I, I remember, um, I pretty much remember every meal that they ate for the entire series, um, especially Farmer Boy. They ate really well. Let me tell you, Monzo's family, they knew how to cook. Did you attempt to recreate any of the dishes? One dish that I make, I don't make it that often anymore because my husband doesn't do dairy. Um, But I used to do this a lot. You take a really ripe tomato. And if you don't have a ripe tomato, it's not going to work. It has to be the kind of tomato, when you eat this kind of tomato, you understand that it's actually a fruit and not a vegetable. It needs to have sweetness to it. And you slice it and you put it on a plate and you pour heavy cream on it and you put salt and sugar on it. And I know it sounds crazy, but it's so delicious. That sounds so good. (laughs) It doesn't sound crazy to me at all. It sounds terrific. Tell me more about the food scenes that you remember from Laura Ingalls Wilder. I remember there was popcorn in um, Farmer Boy, so Amanzo's story. They would pop popcorn on the fire, of course. So you'd you'd put the popcorn in a mesh basket and you'd You'd put it over the fire, and you know, for me, we had popcorn. You know, we had we actually had an air popper, which was really disgusting, but I didn't know it was disgusting at the time. But it was just so romantic that you would put this mesh thing over an actual fire, and then it would pop, and then they would just pour rivers of melted butter on top. And I was a kid of the '70s and the '80s, right? So it was like that moment of like fat phobia. Nobody wanted to pour rivers of melted butter on anything, and it just sounded like this was a world that was lost to me, and I couldn't get there, and it was so. It was so bittersweet to read about this because I wanted popcorn made over a fire, you know, and you know that it got smoky. And I wanted rivers of melted butter. And I had Air Pop popcorn with nothing on it except salt. So when you look back at young Melissa growing up in Jewish Brooklyn, what do you think it was about the world of Laura Ingalls Wilder that so appealed to her? I think... um, It was just the complete opposite of the world I grew up in. There was nature, first of all. There was this kind of freedom that the girls had. You know, they would walk to school by themselves, and it was like a three-mile walk, and they were like seven and eight years old or something. And um, it just felt very free, and it felt exotic to me. There was also a family closeness. You know, Pa would play the fiddle, and they would all gather around, and 
and in this one room little kind of cabin, and it just seemed warm and familial. Her family had its own version of gathering around the fireplace. We, we were Scrabble players. So this was, in fact, the way we played Scrabble, <laughs> which is because it would take us hours because we were all so slow and we all were out to win. Let me tell you, I'm very competitive. And so we'd all have our books with us. We weren't allowed to have dictionaries, but we were all allowed to have our novels. So we would sit around and we would read because it would really take 10 or 15 minutes per turn. And so by the time you, there are four of us, by the time you got your turn again, it could be 45 minutes. We would sit there and read. And so Scrabble would take all day. We'd have snacks. And then we'd play more Scrabble and we'd read our books. And that was like, <laughs> that was fun times in my family growing up. But it was fun and it was essential. Each year, her parents would pack up the Scrabble board and take Melissa and her sister to the land of Croissant and Proust. My parents were Francophiles, and we spent every summer in France because they were psychiatrists. And back in the day, in the 70s and 80s, psychiatrists took the whole month of August off. If you were, if you went nuts in August, you were just out of luck. So we would, um, pa- they'd pack up the family, and we would house exchange. So we would exchange our house in Brooklyn for some house in France. And this was before the internet. We would type out letters on blue onion skin paper and mail them to the unknown, and then we would get replies. There was a book that was put out, um, and that you could list your house as being available to house swap. And we stayed in different parts of the country. We never stayed in the same house twice, but we made friends with a lot of the people whose houses we exchanged. And in France, all we did was go to markets. You know, we would get up in the morning, we would go to the market, we would shop for lunch, we would come home, we would make lunch, we would play Scrabble, we would go out for dinner, and one meal led to the next meal, led to the next meal. What was your reading life like as a kid over the summers? Yeah, so we would go away for an entire month, and we're a big family of readers. We took two suitcases full of books. We would lug them on the plane, and then we'd usually leave them there, but we would actually... I just remember being a kid and being at the airport and family of four, and we would have eight suitcases and two giant ones were full of books. Do you have any recollection of of particularly strong, powerful reading experiences from those summers? Oh, God. Oh, there was the summer of Clan of the Cave Bear, I'm embarrassed to admit. <laughs> this, that's the Gene Owl, oh, prehistoric. Yes. Yeah, uh, it was really yeah. horrible. But yeah, we all read that. And what we did, so I was reading it, my mom was reading it, my sister was reading it. So my mom would read a page and she'd tear it out of the book because we knew it was a crappy book. We just couldn't help it. She'd tear it out of the book. She'd hand it to me. I'd read it. I'd hand it to my sister. <laughs> Soon, though, she'd find a book to treasure. When we come back from the break, Melissa comes across a novel that dares her to pair her love of food with literature. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Melissa found the book that would change her life when she went to college. I was at Barnard, and I 
um, was taking, you know, it was just one of those survey classes that you take, and it was the introduction to the novel. Um, and Don Quixote was one of the first novels, you know, it was the birth of the novel. It was something that, oh my God, there, Cervantes is playing. He's playing with, with language, he's playing with themes, and, and it just seemed like, well, okay, you know, there's a lot of fun and play. It gave me permission to write. It gave me permission to do something different. And I didn't think I wanted to write about food back then. Although food, as you know, food was definitely the main theme and everything I wrote even before I became a food writer. It was just my, that was my metaphor. That's my lens. I mean, I tell you the story of how I grew up and I tell it through food. And this is how I told all of my stories. So when I, you know, I read Don Quixote and um, kind of the writing, it's almost like writing had no rules. Like I, it was... I mean, of course there are rules, but it gave me this freedom. Like, hey, he just broke out and did that, and it was a thing. You're hungry, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) I got to stop talking about tomatoes with cream on it. She recalls the way that this novel captivated her and her peers. It was just a group of us sitting around talking about Don Quixote, and we're like, God, that Sancho Panza, can you believe what he did? It was almost like we were gossiping about friends. And yeah, the Duke and Duchess, the way that they treated poor Don Quixote. And it was just, um, you know, the characters, you know when you read a book and the characters are your friends? And then you have a whole community. So that, I miss that. That was really great. Were you in any way recreating the same experience you had talking to your sister about Laura Ingalls Wilder? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, we weren't quizzing each other, but maybe we were communing. I mean, we were connecting. So how do you connect to people, right? You connect to people over you have shared things. Food is a great connector because you can feed people and everybody eats. So everybody talks about food. Even if you eat different things, there's always that point of intersection. I eat, you eat, what did you eat? And there's just it's a way to talk about it, right? With books, it's the same thing. If you have a, a shared something, a, a shared love of a particular book and you can talk to someone about that, it's another um point of um, connection. So maybe I'm just spending my whole life looking for points of connection. Do you associate any particular foods with, say, Don Quixote? Yeah, totally. Okay, so there's a bunch of stuff in there that I remember. Well, first of all, you know, so Sancho Panza was the glutton. He was the Don's sidekick, right? And Don Quixote was the knight, and he was this old guy. And he's going around on these, you know, adventures, and he's a little out of his head, so he's fighting with windmills, and he thinks they're giants. But he's also not eating. He's doesn't he's so lovelorn so he can't eat and so his lack of food is kind of this big thing in the book you know when he eats he's like stewed beans or something but Sancho Panza is a glutton and he's always looking for his next meal so the juxtaposition of the two of them is really great to read about so when I think of Don Quixote I think in terms of food I think of like this sort of poor meals that he was eating you know these just stewed beans which actually stewed beans sound perfectly good to me but in the context of the book it was the food of poverty and it was the food of um starvation and then Sancho Panza and he was finding pie or even if he was eating bread and onions which is a theme that comes up a lot they don't have anything to eat so they're just eating bread with onions in my mind I have a recipe for this like I it's not just like you take a piece of bread and you take an onion and you bite the onion like an apple and you eat your bread no 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 you toast your bread over an open fire and of course you have olive oil and you don't even mention it in the book because they're Spanish they have olive oil and you put the olive oil on the toasted bread which has crispy browned edges and it's soaked in olive oil and then you take the onions and you slice them super super thin and you put some salt on it and, you know, you eat this delicious thing. And this was all going on in your head? All going on in my head. Oh, 100%. Melissa went on to grad school at Columbia and pursued an MFA. 
I didn't know what I was going to write about, but I just knew that somehow I had to write. And I knew that my metaphor, the way I told my stories, was through food. There was no food writing back then. There was restaurant criticism, you know, or there was cookbook writing. She found other ways to indulge her love of food outside of writing. So I was working in restaurants, and then I was also catering. I had a little catering company running run out of my apartment um, on uh, in Morningside Heights. And um, someone said, oh, you know, you're a writer, and, and you have a catering company. You know how to cook. So can you do this cookbook? It's like, sure. And um, so I wrote a bread machine cookbook in six weeks. I had four bread machines going 24 hours a day. I'd wake up at 4 in the morning and feed the bread machine. And um, that book did really well. And so they gave me another. And then they gave me – I ended up doing four books for this book packager. I just didn't believe that anybody was actually reading me. And that was super freeing. Um, and it was also a great way to, you know, to meet a deadline. You're like, all right, I got to get this done. Okay, I can get this done because <laughs> nobody's going to read it anyway. And then I just started getting other book packages that were a little bigger and a little glossier and a little shinier. And I put more care into them. And then I realized, actually, some people are reading these. Melissa now connects with millions of people through her writing, but she never forgets the lessons she took from Don Quixote on playfulness, camaraderie, and compassion. When I first read it, I thought it was hilarious, and it is hilarious. But the second time I read it, I thought it was so deeply sad, like I could cry. Like, um, like why is that? I mean, I guess I had... You know, when you read something as a college kid and you you don't have a lot of sadness in your life, I mean, you have your, I mean, honestly, actually, childhood is probably the saddest time of people's lives, I think. Um, so you do have that, but you, you haven't analyzed it in a way. And then when you're, a, when you're an adult, it's just so much richer. And it was, I just, I saw the sadness in a different way. And I saw a lot of the comedy as a cover-up for sadness and for these deep um, issues. I mean, I mean, I, I, I what I had seen as a daffy old man became this, you know, this man just trying to live a meaningful life. And what does it mean to live a meaningful life? And when there is sadness, and, and there is so much sadness in that book, how do we go on, right? How do we process it and take it in and, and grow from it or at least accept it as part of us? And so those themes were a lot more vivid. And then also, how do you do it with humor and grace? And so, you know, Cervantes, like, he did it all and it was with humor and grace and um, compassion. Like, he's so, you know, writers can write about a character who's a little crazy or a little sad or whatever and not have compassion for their, you know, you know writers don't necessarily have compassion for their characters. He had so much compassion. And so then how do, you, how do you become even more of a compassionate person in the world and go through the world in a way that's, you know, richer? But That's Another Story is produced by Christy Westgard. Thanks to Melissa Clark. If you'd like to learn more about the books we've mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. You can also find a transcript of this episode and past ones on LitHub. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstory at macmillan.com. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.